welcome to the edition podcast. I'm your host, Charlotte Henry. I'm really excited this week because I'm joined by Mark Stenberg from Adweek, where he is the senior media report. He covers the business of media and publishers, publishes lots of really interesting stories, but there's one we want to get into. But first of all, hello, Mark. Thank you for joining me. Hey, Charlotte. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, I should also say you're a fellow Substacker, but we'll get on to that. Um, we're here really because we were kind of ha- we had an email exchange and we'll go we'll, we'll break down the fourth wall a little bit we had a little bit of an email exchange um and inevitably as these things do when you talk about media and advertising and so on you talk about cookies uh and we were like eh, we talked about that before um but it linked to the story we want to talk about which is uh you what you described as the kind of subscription funnel at vogue um the reason why i think it obviously relates to cookies and third-party cookies is obviously all these major publishers, as you have documented in your reporting, are looking at as many different ways as possible to generate reader revenue, to know who their readers are, to to follow their readers in a way that you know is legal and privacy reflected. Um, um, so first of all, just as a, we'll do one minute on the kind of where are we with third-party cookies? Has Apple destroyed the industry kind of thing? Uh, what's your take on that? Has Apple's ad tracking transparency changed things as much as you thought? What are you hearing from the people buying and selling ads? Yeah, well, I think that it has changed things dramatically and will continue to change things dramatically in conjunction with, obviously, the Google third-party deprecation, making it a lot more difficult for marketers to measure and attribute in the ways that they have grown accustomed to over the last several years. So I think industry-wide, obviously, a massive paradigm shift. But for publishers, depending on who you are and who you ask, it can be an opportunity in disguise. And a lot of the big publishers are sort of looking forward to the days where the relationships that they've spent or the the relationships that they've built over the last decade with their readership is now going to become a lot more valuable to marketers who need to link up with that and connect with that in order to reach these people who, who are, you know, engaged readers. Yeah. Um, So there's a, there's a bit, there's a bit of a quality versus quantity thing there isn't there and the noise you can hear in the background by the way is Mark Zuckerberg's tears um because obviously we saw that in results very soon after Apple's moves were announced that Facebook's advertising business took a huge hit straight out the gate um but what your story really and it's it's I've linked to it in the show notes um what your story about Vogue which was centered around the Met Gala and its coverage of the Met Gala really focus on it could it didn't have to be a, that event particularly but what it was was the publication's absolute determination to get uh, kind of the most revenue per reader it could whether that's just an email address that email address had value whether it was a paid subscription and anything in between uh, am i mischaracterizing that does that sound fair that sounds very fair yeah. So explain some of the, so as I say, it was the Met Gala, which obviously a huge event if you're in the world of fashion, um, and which Vogue very, very, very much is. Uh, and so instead of just doing kind of maybe a photo spread on its website and some nice photos in the next edition of the magazine, kind of break down for us a bit, if you don't mind, Mark, all the different digital things that Vogue did to cover this mega event. Yeah, I think it was a really interesting case study into how publishers 
are thinking about turning traffic into longer relationships with readers. So the Met Gala is this really great example of here is an event that's going to bring some literally more than 10 million plus readers in the course of a single evening to this website. And I think historically, a lot of publishers have kind of sat back and, you know, enjoyed as their programmatic revenue spiked as the traffic went up. But the changes to the identity landscape are really encouraging publishers to try and turn flyby traffic into different forms of readership that they can actually capitalize in the future. So some of the big things there were they really promoted some of the Vogue newsletters. And in the course of an evening, or basically 24 hours, were able to generate 100,000 new subscribers to their email list, which is, of course, a really great way of building habit. So here they turn these people who are visiting for one opportunity uh, into a potentially recurring reader down the line. Um, and then another thing that they did that I thought was really interesting was they had this really popular package that essentially allowed you to look at and then vote on the outfits that the celebrities were wearing at the Met Gala. And they said, oh, that my God, the horror. <laughs> Yeah. And they, they basically said that in order for you to be able to vote, you have to log in and create an account on oh, vote. Yeah. Um, and they were able, so we call that a registration wall. They were able to get 30,000 new registrants in the course of an evening by basically just putting up that wall. Um, so both of those two things are really interesting developments in terms of like how publishers are trying to take people who are just coming by to read an article and see if they can get them subscribed to a newsletter or get them at least to create a login, uh, both of which are going to move people down a little bit from just passing by in the night to potentially a recurring Vogue reader and then going down in that funnel the ultimate goal uh, would be to get them to sign up for Vogue's new membership program, which is technically a subscription. They call it a membership. It's called Vogue Club. Vogue Club, yeah. They literally launched it like two months ago. Um, and now that they have that bottom of the funnel kind of conversion, they have a subscription program. They are trying to get people to move downward in that funnel toward that subscription. But what, but what you were talking about and what I just, um, or what you were alluding to, uh, is this increasing idea amongst publishers that I think is really fascinating. That's a little bit of an evolution rather than look at every reader and say, how can we get them to be a subscriber? I think more publishers are saying readers have different desires. Not everybody's going to want to be a subscriber. How can we ascertain what those desires are and then maximize revenue for that person? So if somebody shows a proclivity to subscribe, continue pushing them down the funnel, try to get them to subscribe. But if they're resolute in visiting just once a month, maybe a paywall is not the best option. You're never going to get them to subscribe. How can you make the most money off them if they're just going to visit once a month? You get them to register. That way you can serve better ads to them, collect more information, create a better product. Maybe they return more. But it's a, it's a little bit of a changing perspective from move everyone toward the same goal you know, a, a tour moving in the direction of what is everybody's individual goal? How can we, you know, move them toward that? And of course, the other thing that's different as well is it's not just about the traffic numbers. Now, the traffic numbers you outline in your piece are huge. Uh, you said it uh, it attracts 11.5 million total visitors to the Vogue website. Uh, 8 million of that 11.5 million were there exclusively for Met Gala content. So it knew what it was, you know, it knew his audience pretty well just mm -hmm. to pull that off and knew exactly what people wanted. Um, but it 
they didn't just go, oh, that's great. We've had a really good day or good 48 hours because of the Met Gala. It, you know, it's the sort of opposite approach to the kind of Super Bowl thing, right? Where, mm-hmm. you, you know, I think you make this point in your piece, actually, uh, where it's not TV companies go, okay, we've got this amazing thing that everyone's going to watch on this one night of the year. And so we're going to charge a lot for ads on that one night of the year. This was about keeping people engaged longer. And I suspect, you know, you, you were talking quite bluntly and quite correctly about that it is about getting as much revenue whatever that potential is out of a reader i suspect if anna winter was sitting next to you uh she would in her inimitable fashion point out that it's also about making sure the reader is getting the best value from their engagement with vogue i'm sure that's how they would argue it isn't it mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. you know if you're someone that just wants to look at pictures once a month of your favorite celebrity or a, a, an event Vogue will make a way for you to do that. If you want to get newsletters from Vogue, they'll find a way to get you to do that. And if you are the ultimate person that wants to pay for either a magazine subscription or a club subscription, um, they'll take they'll gladly take your money and hope you get the most out of that subscription. So it's it's both sides in that relationship, isn't it? That it's trying to get the most for. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I did obviously be a sort of like crass and capitalist as it no, can be when I'm uh, talking about get the most money, but like there, it's a virtuous cycle and they are absolutely intertwined. The publisher is going to monetize their readers most effectively if they create a product that their reader loves and wants to return to habitually. So they are really one and the same in many, in many ways. Um, I, I think yeah. the other thing we have to talk about, uh, particularly with a visual event such as the Met Gala is the videos. Mm. Uh, you said that, that Vogue put 70 videos just on, exclusively on YouTube, which, you know, is an amazing thing. I heard actually the new, on a different podcast, um, uh, the new CEO of Vogue talking about, basically, we've got to do YouTube because that's where people are. We can mm-hmm. pretend, you know, they're not, we can pretend it's not where people want to watch videos and try and get them to our website. But if we're making video and want people to watch them, YouTube is the place to put them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did 70 uh, Met Gala videos, which, you know, for a thing that was a glossy print magazine is a huge step forward in what the kind of thing they're making. Definitely. Yeah, that's something that I, so I was able to go to the Condé Nast uh, new front a, a few weeks back where they basically were presenting all their video offerings to a room full of marketers in hopes of getting some of them to sign advertising contracts. And as a result, they were really playing up their video ambitions. Uh, and Condé Nast has really moved into this area under the CEO, Roger Lynch. Um, they hired this woman, Agnes Chu, who was a Disney Plus executive to lead Condé Nast Entertainment. And they've really said, we're going to have video be a massive component of our business. And they have this interesting approach that I like. They call it a surround sound approach, where they basically say, people are consuming content in different ways than they have historically. We need to create content in ways that match that. Uh, and we need to, th- that entails being on different platforms. Um, that entails, uh, you know, different kinds of content. Um, and so for Condé Nast, what that looks like for, for Vogue is creating a bunch of videos that go, you know, that are people getting ready for the Met Gala, then videos and social, obviously, at the Met Gala, and then following it, after parties, recaps, all these kinds of things. So the people who are consuming stuff on their phone, while they're watching their connected television, while they're on social media, maybe they're reading an article the next day, 
um, Kanye really wants to be where you are and create the kind of content that you like, whatever that is. And they've really kind of compared and contrasted this approach to like the walled garden of some other publishers who say, look, if you like what we're making, you have to come to our properties to consume it. Condé said, no, that doesn't work for us. We want to be sort of attached at the hip to culture. And that means we need to go to the places where it's occurring. Yeah. And and it seems to have worked. It was 902 million views of Met related video content in your story, which is a staggering staggering yeah. number uh and 110 percent increase from last year now it makes sense that you would get a bit of a shift from last year because it was all a bit weird the met gala in a kind of weird pandemic everyone was a bit it was all felt a bit weird didn't it the met gala last year yeah. um but this was the first one that was like they everyone was like we're back um so uh, and it so basically it all seems to be paying off from what i can tell um same across social networks there was you know big increases again wasn't there according to the data you were given so but but it is interesting that they're kind of moving away from this wall garden and are prepared to go you know we understand obviously we want you to buy our lovely glossy magazines they're also going we understand that you're not just doing that you are consuming youtube instagram so on and so forth Mm -hmm. and as a publisher from what you're describing they seem to be just be fully embracing that reality instead of trying to fight against it which a company the size of Condé Nast could try and do yeah absolutely I mean I think this goes back to several years ago maybe even coming up on a decade ago I think a lot of the success that they started having with Bon Appetit which is something where they were like let's turn this publication around they put it on YouTube and it became a runaway success and obviously that got more complicated what, within the last two years or whatever with their with their leadership turmoil. But I think that that really proved to them that being on video and having a strong YouTube presence is a way to get revenue from the IP and the brand um, of the things that they've created rather than the magazine or the text itself. And I think they really run with that idea. Um, I think it is part of a larger trend that I'm starting to see in like, I mean, it's true. It literally is what appears to be a sort of second pivot to video. And like every publisher Don't nowadays, say it, Mark. Don't do it. <laughs> everybody's been burned. And so everybody's like going into this with this like twice bitten kind of mentality. Like we're not going to have it happen again. And yet you see industry wide people that I talk to are continually saying we're getting more into vertical video. We're getting more into digital video. We're getting into shoppable video. The, a, a large part of the reason is the platforms are really prioritizing video, like especially Facebook and Instagram to compete with Reels, or I'm sorry, to compete with TikTok, TikTok and YouTube yeah. um, are all really granting far more visibility to video content. So there's an industry-wide shift toward it. What's going to be interesting to see how it plays out is, are they able to balance this a little bit better than they did back in 2017 and say, hey, we can get the the, the benefits of being a more video-centric company without fully sort of losing our footing and getting the rug pulled out from underneath us. Yeah, and we're seeing things as, as well as obviously Reels versus TikTok. We're seeing YouTube shorts trying to get into that shorter form vertical video game. Um, I'll be interested to see how publishers try and adapt to that as well, that bit. Um, but... How, what did you get any indication when reporting out this story kind of what the next steps are so they made this work with one very prestigious event what do you are they going to use the same tactic at other kind of high profile events mm. are we going to see this for every major 
film premiere? You know, how, how are they going to capitalize on what they've learned on this big night? I think you absolutely will see them try to repeat this playbook. Um, and this is something that they said at the new front, a big thing that they've had success with is picking these sort of signature cultural events and then really dominating them with their brand presence. So obviously with Vanity Fair, you have the Oscars with Vogue, you have the Met Gala. What they're trying to do with GQ is make the Super Bowl their sort of quintessential event because they're trying to move more That's into interesting. sports. Yeah. And this is a So another... GQ is going to try and take on ESPN and the networks for the it, Super they, Bowl. A little bit. They're trying to do sort of again, this surround sound approach. They're going to leave the actual sports to the ESPNs of the world. But if you look, I mean, obviously athletes and clothing have become really intertwined yep. over the yep. last few years. GQ has done a really good job of like chronicling street style and like what the athletes are wearing in the tunnel. So they're really trying to like own all the fashion and, and celebrity coverage that surrounds the Super Bowl. And then of course, leave the sports to the, to the powers that be. Um, and it's an interesting strategy. And in fact, Another major media company, Bustle Digital Group, uh, just hired a former GQ executive um, to lead several of their titles, including Gawker, basically four of their publications. Gawker 2.0. <laughs> Gawker 2.0. They're trying to kind of copy the same thing. And I was talking to these people from BDG and they're saying, we're trying to pick our cultural moments and we're going to do to Comic-Con what Vanity Fair is doing to the Oscars. Right. And so it's this interesting moment of like, how can publishers take these cultural events and turn them into, you know, as a metaphor, their Super Bowl, but actually in some cases, literally their Super, the Super Bowl. Bowl. So, <laughs> yeah. But I would like to drill down more on this idea that it's not just about, so about the numbers on the night. Mm. Because, it, you know, most of these places, we've seen it and also can pull off a big night. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know, maybe you have a better idea of the numbers of how many, you know, people go to vogue.com on a normal day mm -hmm. but you know you're not going to get 11.5 million total visitors probably to vogue.com on a normal day it's a huge mm -hmm. number mm -hmm. um but how how so they they understand there's going to be a traffic spike but how do they want to keep you coming back to the website itself with whilst appreciating that traffic on day one is not the end game yeah, no, that is uh, that is the crux of the whole strategy. And I think that, like we discussed a little bit, the newsletters are a great way to do that. If yep. you can get someone to sign up for a newsletter, then you get them constantly getting tiny updates from you that go straight to their inbox, no interference through social media algorithms. If you can get them to register, then maybe when that person returns to that site, a recommended article catches their eye and begins the process of them returning a little bit more habitually. There's also, I mean, all these other products too. I know that uh, actually Condé Nast did a similar thing on the Oscars with Vanity Fair, talking about the surround sound approach. They had a podcast specifically that was about dissecting the Oscars. Right, and so people yes. who went for Oscars content, theoretically very interested in the Oscars, might then choose to listen to that podcast develop a little bit more of an affinity for Vanity Fair as a result of that. So a lot of it is like, you came here for this one thing. We know that you like it. Here's four more offerings that we have that are all related. 
Uh, and whether you want to consume newsletters or podcasts or video or text, we have something for everybody. So it's really trying to like take your interest and, and, and no matter what it looks like, have a product that caters to it. That, yeah. And what is the link? Do I think the question I'm really going to ask is do the different publications under the Condé Nast umbrella play nice? So if you subscribe to Vogue and Vogue newsletter, are they going to also try and nudge you towards Vanity Fair or just try and extract as much from you from for Vogue as possible? Good question. Um, I think that they will probably take as much as you'll give them. If you show a propensity to read on, on multiple accounts, then all the better. And I would imagine, in fact, I, I could nearly guarantee it, that the Condé Nast, Condé Nast you know, backend platform is all one and the same. So whether you're visiting Vanity Fair or Vogue or GQ, it's going to recognize you from site to site. It's going to be able to create a much more robust profile. In fact, that's the sort of geo media approach. Mm. I was speaking with them the other day. That's all Gizmo that's Gizmodo, Jezebel, AV Club, Deadspin, um, wildly different audiences, like you're into sports, you're into yeah. satire, you're into whatever, but because you log in and you visit various, you visit the various properties, it then begins to create a really rich profile of, of what, you, what you're interested in. So I would imagine Condé uh, is, is definitely going to do the same thing. This is a personal plea of mine. I do wish Condé Nast would make it easier to sync up your subscriptions i subscribe to both wired and vanity fair and trying mm. to make my computer my ipad and the magazine subscription realize it's the same thing is more painful than i think it needs to be in 2022 you know i have a fun little a little tangent if you have like a, a thought exercise specifically with with somebody like Condé nas i've wondered for a while now if it made sense for you just to have a Condé nas subscription and it's a little oh, bit more expensive if, than like if they um, released a Condé Nast bundle, bundle, shut up and take my money. Yeah, right. Like, so I subscribe to the New Yorker. I think that's the only Condé Nast I subscribe to. But if I, if and that's like ten dollars a month. If they did twenty dollars a month, but, but it's then also I got in Apple all News. of this stuff. Yeah. Yes. So, um, you but know, digitally, not you wouldn't expect to get six print magazines through. Yeah, and I just wonder how many people are subscribing to more than one. Condé product because they would not want to cannibalize that they wouldn't you know if, if they could get you to subscribe to two why would they only have you subscribe to one but I can't imagine I just feel like the number of people who aren't subscribed at all is far greater than the number of people who are subscribed to two or more um, so I feel like they would get more subscribers if they did some sort of bundle than if they continue I would be fiefdom. such a sucker for something like that but you know I just know I would it's just my dream. I'm like, I would love to hear a refutation of this idea, but I've I've yet to listen. Get an audience with the CEO. There's a reason <laughs> why Roger Roger Lynch and Anna Winter and Co get paid a lot more than you and I, Mark. Yeah, it's probably a bad idea, but a um, boy can dream. I, I uh, but what I'm thinking of actually when I mention my subscriptions is. The fact that I think I took out both those descriptions on basically a back of a classic Condé Nast introductory offer. Mm. And is what you described on Met Garlight in a way the digital equivalent of that? Mm. You know, that is a good. Do you know question. what I mean? Take out, you know, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Um, take out, you know, is the newsletter the kind of entry drug you know the gateway drug to that's presumably what it's meant to be mm -hmm. to 
take you get you to really love and not be able to live without Vogue content. So you have to take out the full fat subscription. It really is. I mean, I think they would probably push back on calling it the gateway drug, but you know, and probably if full if, fat as well. If we're, it's if probably we're not a very both. That is exactly what they wanted to do. I mean, that's how newsletter. I'm a sucker for newsletters. In fact, if I go to a website that I've never been to before and I like it. I sign up for a newsletter just so that I remember that I went the one time yeah. and maybe I'll give it a second try. Newsletters are like my way of bookmarking a website. Um, and so if you don't have a newsletter, my chances of reading your material fall drastically. Um, so yeah, I imagine that they do probably look at it similarly as like, how can they get their Tinder hooks into these, these innocent passersby um, and if it is in the form of a podcast or a newsletter or even, you know, following them on social media, I mean, the, the funnel starts very high up. Yeah. Um, but whatever you're willing to do and interested in doing, they want to make sure like the worst thing for a publisher is if they have someone like me who loves a newsletter and searches for a newsletter and doesn't find it. You know what I mean? Like they want, I mean, that is increasingly we're asking media companies to be so much. They have to be in all these different channels, but uh, the reality is if they want to capture people from from all corners of the internet they have to kind of be all things all people yeah and just to ex extend my kind of metaphor for, of the, the that subscription that they offer obviously part of that cheap subscription they offer you at the beginning is they want you to forget after a year and you've paid the full whack yeah for a year um and perhaps that's the same with this kind of digital version they get you to sign up for some stuff and you suddenly find you ended up signing for other stuff. It's slightly different because a lot of the things you describe in your article don't cost you any money. Yeah, that is a big difference. Yes, I think that's huge. I've actually written very disparagingly about some of those practices. Um, some like web design people will call those dark patterns. But this idea of like, you sign up for $1. I just did this for the LA Times. $1 for six months. Um, I'm certainly going to forget about it. <laughs> and then after seven months is going to be, who knows, you know, 15, $20, whatever. And I'm going to have forgotten about it and they're going to get that money. And while that's obviously sort of defensible in the eyes of the law, I don't think that that's a healthy, uh, you know, way to build a relationship. So I don't, I yeah, don't, I, I don't, I'm, I've never really understood what benefit that has to a, uh, subs to the publisher beyond the first set of subscriptions because actually the thing it mostly encourages me to do when i've done the same as you and signed up for something for a pound or whatever and then forgotten about it mm. is just be really irritated when i notice the first full payment comes out and immediately unsubscribe yes exactly it seems a very short-term way of doing things whereas what you subscribe what you describe uh with the kind of longer term funnel seems a much longer way to build a more dynamic and meaningful relationship with a reader yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, and you'll even see like people experiment with newsletters where like all the Vogue ones that we're talking about are free um, and you can go to the website and then read it for free. But then there are a lot of other publishers who have a mix of in the newsletter itself, oh, this article is paywalled, but this one is free. Or maybe the entire content of the newsletter is free, but if you click to the website, it's paywalled. So there's ways to sort of uh, present the subscription product in a free product um, in a way that feels like a fair exchange of value, I think. Uh, and I think if you're the LA Times or whoever, I mean, a lot of places do this where you offer yeah. this bargain bin trial rate to get people to subscribe. A, that just artificially bolsters your subscriber numbers. 
Um, and, and subscriptions have become kind of a horse race where people say so-and-so is a million, so-and-so is 500,000, you know, that can just be a vanity metric. Ultimately, I think a lot of the research is starting to suggest that you want to basically discount as little as possible because you want people to pay the full price and see the value in it and stick with it. There is, there's a, a balancing act where like some discounting, some trialing is helpful to get people in the door. But I think we're starting to see that the age of these $1 for six month promotions uh, are, are, you know, going the way of the dinosaur. Um, before I head off and check all my subscriptions, which are about to renew, um, there's just uh, there's one other bit I want to drag out. And you you noted that Vogue generated a total of 300 million views uh, across all its different platforms, basically Instagram Reels and TikTok. That's what you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and 655,000 new followers. Huge, mm-hmm. huge numbers. Yeah. Um, but only a publisher this really the size of Condé Nast can afford to give that level of content away for free, really? Or am I missing something? Mm. Um, well, you're right to a degree. It is certainly a privilege of being Vogue that you can have all of those social media followers and treat them as sort of nothing more than marketing. But I do know that I'm pretty sure they monetize their social media. Uh, So these massive gains in followers do translate to gains in revenues uh, at a certain point in the line. Um, Yeah, I mean, of course, on, on, say, a YouTube channel, that's fairly standard to get some adverts on that. And if you get huge numbers on your videos, you'll get a decent return, particularly mm-hmm. if you're a high profile publisher like Vogue or Condé Nast more broadly. Um, and there are, as you say, programs across Instagram uh, and TikTok. I, I can't imagine Condé Nast, uh, Vogue is in the TikTok creator fund. Probably not. I, <laughs> I, I don't know, but they've been playing up their presence on TikTok because yeah. I know that there are various TikTok trends that have to do with Vogue and voguing and things like that. So that was something when they were trying to convince me that like the people were begging them to come to TikTok, which I'm like, okay, that seems like maybe a bit of a, a an exaggeration, but um, they've really you wanted the young social media. <laughs> yeah. So. You know, I don't know. They're 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 doing some impressive things on social media, absolutely. But you know, they do try to translate that back to their own and operated at some point. Well, thank you so much for laying this all out. It was a fascinating article, Mark. And as I say, it will be in the show notes, um, as will a link to Mark's Substack. Mark, tell us quite briefly about that. What you do when you're not busting a gut for Ad Week, you have somehow have time to also write about media for yourself. Yeah, it's insufferable. No, I, I <laughs> so I do write a personal newsletter called Media Light. It's also about the media industry, but it's a it's a nice sort of experimental sandbox where I get to write about things that are too small to be ad week stories or too weird to be ad week stories, um, or too subjective and opinionated and, and un, unfounded in fact to be ad week stories. Uh, so if you're <laughs> interested in any of those, uh, you know, kinds of uh, content, then I would recommend it. Yep, I I subscribe. It's good fun. Uh, it's media light. Uh, so that's l y t e r dot substack dot com. Again, link in the show notes. Mark, thank you so much for joining me. Where can people follow you on social media as well if you want to get those uh those Vogue like numbers from your <laughs> yeah, subscriber? That would inevitably come from big on this show. Uh, the bump. Um, yeah, tw- Twitter. I'm at Mark Stimberg three. That's probably the best place to find me. 
I'm at Charlotte A. Henry on Twitter. Obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know where to find it, but do subscribe and share it within any podcast app. And if you're listening to it on uh, the Substack app or website, you can subscribe in your favorite podcast app as well. So please do and come join me there. Um, please do either, you know, we've listened to how important it is to get these numbers and signups from Vogue. So in that spirit, do please sign up for the edition either as a free or paid tier user. It's all very much appreciated. Um, and we'll be back next week with another great show. Thanks.